Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. For months, Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump has warned that next month's election could be rigged so the Democrat Hillary Clinton would win. We have to make sure that this election is not stolen from us and is not taken away from us. We have to make sure the people of Philadelphia are protected that the vote counts are 100 percent. As you just heard, Trump says he is especially leery of voting in the city of Philadelphia. Dave Davies of WHOI in Philadelphia, who you have heard on WITF many times, recently reported on election security and corruption. He joins us on today's program. Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. All right. So let's talk about uh, the kind of the, the broad overview here. You looked into whether Trump's concerns are realistic when it comes to cheating at the polling places. What did you find? Yeah, it's pretty scary stuff to hear, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> it really like is. Coming up on Halloween and anything can happen. <laughs> um, well, you know, as always in these things, there's something to it. I mean, there are cases of, you know, misconduct in elections in Philadelphia, but they're pretty small. Um, what I found, I mean, kind of the, the bottom line is that there's no evidence that the Republicans are planning to assemble a massive cadre of, ball- of poll watchers to descend on Philadelphia polling places and try and, and challenge or intimidate Democratic voters, which a lot of Democrats are worried about. And by the same token, when I looked at uh, the record of voter problems in Philadelphia, there are some that that stem from the fact that it is really a one-party town. You know, there are seven times more Democrats than Republicans. So there are some polling places where you have an election board that's entirely Democratic, and without Republican eyes, some mischief can happen. And you know, I, I spoke to the head of the city, the city's election board, who ironically is a Republican. Um, and what he says is, yeah, there are a few cases where where some things have happened, but they typically amount to small numbers of votes and typically are more intended to influence down-ballot races. You know, those things like a state representative or committee person where the locals really have a stake in it much more um, than a presidential contest where people aren't going to risk a federal crime, not many, um, to, to give Trump or, or, or Clinton a few more votes. So uh, on the whole, I think generally reason to feel reassured that we're going to have a fair election. You know, I, you can't uh, psychoanalyze Donald Trump or uh, speculate on what he's thinking, but any idea why he picks out the city of Philadelphia? I mean, even the New York Times did a story this week about Trump and picking on Philadelphia as a place where this could occur. You know, I'm, I'm you know, as you say, yeah, <laughs> trying to read Trump's mind is a, is a, a pointless task, probably. But you know, a lot of people in a lot of parts of the state in the Republican base view Philadelphia as a bastion of, you know, corruption and democratic corruption in particular. And, you know, there's some, I think there's a hint of racism in all this, you know, that uh, it's, uh, they, people perceive it as African-American Democrats who are just going to d- go and steal all kinds of votes. One of the things that you hear is that in 50 voting divisions, that it's say precincts, in Philadelphia in the 2012 election, Mitt Romney did not get a single vote. And this is often spoken of as, as evidence that, you know, that there is intimidation and theft uh, in a, a town that's run completely by Democrats. Um, if you talk to the, the executive director of the Philadelphia Republican Party, he'll say, no, I'm not surprised that in an election where you have a lot of voting divisions, which are, are almost completely African-American, and you have an African-American candidate against a rich, rich white Republican, it's not surprising that you'll have 50 divisions out of 1,600 in which there's a, there's a unanimous choice 
But, uh, yeah, I do think it, it's a trope. I think there is a lot of suspicion about what happens in Philadelphia, and there certainly have been a number of corruption cases in Philadelphia and still are. Uh, but most of them don't involve voter fraud and certainly not voter fraud in big numbers. You're right, what you said uh, earlier about the rest of the state being suspicious of what happens in Philadelphia. You know, we in this part of the state and other parts of the state have heard about, uh, you know, some of the heritage of Philadelphia. One thing that, and I I don't know if it still occurs or not, I, I assume it does, but like street money, for example, people see that as corruption, that the people are paid to go out and get people to the to the polls and maybe even influence who they vote for. Does that kind of thing still occur? Oh, absolutely. But it isn't quite what it sounds like. I mean, it's it's not handing people $5, you know, to, to, to cast their vote because, A, you can't follow them into the polling place, and B, it would get awfully expensive. But no, what happens is that politicians will pay ward leaders and other operatives money to hire street workers on election day. And what they will do are the perfectly legal things that other campaigns do, which is to drive around in sound trucks and keep uh, go, go put put notices on people's doors, and then the ones that do it well will keep lists of voters, which are public and available to everybody, and you can keep track of who has voted at a particular polling place. And 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, if Mrs. Jones hasn't gotten out to vote yesterday yet, you go to her door and knock on it or maybe give her a lift if she needs it. And that's the kind of sort of ground game, field organizing, get out the vote effort that's done in a lot, in a lot of places. And there are a lot of places where it's, it's done by paid operatives. I mean, um, but it, it, it has this, particularly because it's distributed through typically Democratic ward leaders in Philadelphia and some Republican, it, it kind of has this sinister taint of street money. But it's essentially paying for field operatives to do get-out-the-vote work. And yes, it is still very much a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just add, Scott, that you know I think the corrupt side of street money isn't that it leads to stolen votes, but those who are in a position to offer these services, and their Democratic ward leaders in particular, um, could be in a position, particularly where you have judicial races, right? All these judicial candidates that none of us have ever heard from, heard of. Well, they will pay a thousand dollars, or fifteen hundred, or two thousand dollars to a, a ward leader in a certain area to say, "Please, please recommend me to your voters." And you know, that's a fair amount of cash going to a politician. And I think, particularly in past decades where reporting wasn't good, some of that went into the pockets of those politicians. So the corruption, I think, is much more about you know, kind of politicians pocketing a little money that, that should be going to field operatives. But it's not so much about stealing votes. But, yeah, it absolutely happens. Street money is very much a phenomenon in Philly. One of the things I found most interesting about uh, the story that uh, you recently did had to do with poll watchers and a little-known law here in Pennsylvania as to what poll watchers can actually do. I mean, I, I had never heard of this. Talk about that, if you will, of, of them poll watchers being able to question voters. Yeah, isn't it funny? You know, I didn't know that either. And I've literally been covering elections in the state for 30 years. Um, it turns out, uh, and I learned this in a piece in Politico, it turns out that there is a provision of the election code that uh, anyone in a polling place, a poll watcher or a member of the election board, or even another voter who happens to be there casting their own vote, any voter can challenge the identity or residency of another voter who presents him or herself to the polls. You can say, hey, I don't think you live in this voting division, or I don't think you are who you say you are. The interesting part that I'd never heard is that the, the election code then provides that in such a circumstance, um, the 
challenged voter needs to um, sign a sworn affidavit uh, attesting to their identity and residency and produce another witness from the voting division who will attest to their residency and identity, which seems an incredible burden to place on voters. Um, and I, one of the reasons we've never heard about this, you, you or I, Scott, is that it just doesn't happen very much. Um, the state election officials say that, in fact, there, there is case law that says you can't just do indiscriminate challenges. You have to have a, a rational basis for the challenge. And, of course, if someone is challenging their local board, some, one, a person on the board might know them, since they're you know, community folks, might know them and be a witness for them. If they're not, they can cast a vote by provisional ballot. So it's not an easy way to deny someone a vote. But it does seem like a curious provision which places a strange burden on voters to prove who they are if somebody challenges them. And the Brennan Center for Justice says this is an unusual and troubling provision. It's just not invoked very much. Now, Scott, to just take, to take this one step further, I mean, the fear is that if Republican poll watchers were recruited in number and were very aggressive, they could go to a poll, heavily Democratic polling place and just indiscriminately challenge every voter. Um, and there have been fears that this would happen in the past. And even if the challenges didn't stick, you'd create chaos and long lines and probably send some people home disgusted. Um, uh, in, I talked to a political operator who expected this to happen in 2004. There was a reason that they were expecting this, and it just didn't happen most places. It does. It's happened in a, a couple of times at a polling place uh, at the University of Pittsburgh in 2004 and at Lincoln University in 2008. There were these kinds of indiscriminate challenges. If it happened a lot, it would be a problem. But my read is not so likely to be invoked. Uh, a couple of things there, Dave, that, you, you know, when you talk about that state law, that does not exactly sound like clear language that, uh, you know, you have to have a good reason for challenging someone. What, you know, one person's good reason is not another person's good reason. That seems like if there is a law there, it must be it has to be much more clear than that. No, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of wiggle room. And in fact, it's not in the, the law itself. It's not in the code. I mean, the code says you can challenge, period. Um, what what uh, the deputy director of the Department of State said was that that there is case law on in cases like this, which has established that there must be some kind of rational basis. And that it can only be on two things. It can only be on identity or residence. Uh, the implication being that if an ordinary voter who's voted there for years walks up, their name is in the, the binders that the election board has, that there's really no basis other than just saying, hey, who are you? And that in such a circumstance that, you know, the challenge wouldn't be honored. But you're right. I mean, the language isn't clear. And that's one of many things in the state election code that ought to be fixed. Um, but it's hard to do because once you in the legislature starts tinkering with the election code, everybody wants to get in and and make other changes. So they, it tends to just stay the way it is for decades. David, also would seem that if the, the Trump campaign is serious about uh, but the potential for cheating here in Pennsylvania, and especially in Philadelphia, that they would mount an effort to challenge some of these voters. Have you seen any of that? No, I really haven't. And, and the, Trump, the Trump campaign, you know, field organization has not been their strong suit in this campaign. Now, there is a state Republican Party, and, you know, they could be doing this. But I spoke to the state chairman, Rob Gleason, and he said, yeah, we, we always want poll watchers. We want, to, we want to keep an eye. And the executive director of the Philadelphia Republican Party told me, yeah, yeah, we're recruiting poll watchers, but we do that all the time because we do think there ought to be, you know, bipartisan eyes in these polling places where there are large Democratic majorities. But I don't 
see any activity of the Trump campaign doing this on a large on a large scale. And I checked with the Philadelphia Election Board. And, you know, under current law, you can only be a poll watcher in the county in which you live. And there's no uptick at all. In fact, they're a little behind what they were four years ago in terms of poll watcher registration. There, there is, as we note, a bill in the in the legislature which would change the rules on that, but I don't know that that's going to get anywhere. And that, yeah, I was going to bring that up next. That uh, you mentioned in your story that uh, there is a bill in the legislature that, in effect, would allow. You know, we know that here in Central Pennsylvania, there's you know some several counties where there are large Republican majorities. That Republicans from Central Pennsylvania or any part of the state could go to Philadelphia to be poll watchers. Exactly. Yeah, there there is a bill which would, you know, and it's interesting that um, many years ago, you had to be a resident of the actual voting division in, in which you want to be a poll watcher. You know, you couldn't even go to, uh, you know, other places in your own county and, and being poll watcher. That changed. Now, you want, if you're um, certified as a poll watcher, you can you can visit any polling place in your county. This bill would allow any certified poll watcher to go to any polling place in the entire state. So as you say, it would permit, you know, poll, Republican poll watchers from central Pennsylvania to go into Philadelphia if they <laughs> can summon the nerve and challenge voters. It would also permit, you know, de- extra Democratic poll watchers to go into other parts of the state that are Republican uh, and maybe do what they want to do. Uh, this is still in committee. And, you know, honestly, if you take aside all the partisan aspects of it, I'm not sure what I think about it. I and mean, I think they're there ought to be Republican poll watchers in Democratic divisions, and there ought to be Democratic poll watchers in Republican divisions. And and I don't know that it makes such a big difference if you're not from the community. I mean, you know, if you're current under current law, you can go to a different part of your county where, you you know, nobody would know you. So I'm, I don't know that it's that different. But uh, it is being pushed by Republicans, and it would make it easier for the Republican Party to recruit poll watchers and get them into Philadelphia. Um Best as I can tell, it's probably not going to pass the legislature, and if it did, I suspect our Democratic governor might veto it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing election corruption being brought up by Donald Trump himself. Our guest is Dave Davies of WHYY Newsworks in Philadelphia, recently reported on uh, whether the election is secure in the city of brotherly love. WITF's election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg office of the law firm of Saul Ewing, LLP. Now, Dave, you know, you have to look at the potential for mischief anywhere with, with some of these things. If there was expansion of poll watchers, and I'm not just talking about Republican, but, you know, the scenario that uh, you described earlier, Democrats doing the same thing. Isn't there the potential for voter intimidation? Sure. Um, and there is anyway. I mean, you know, I mean, you don't you don't even have to be a poll watcher to intimidate voters. Um, I, I've been con- after I wrote that piece, I got contacted by some Democrats in some suburban areas of Philadelphia um, who said, you know, in Delaware County, which is interesting. I mean, folks may not know this, but Delaware County is a Philadelphia suburban area, a lot of working class communities historically ruled by a Republican machine. It's more. Um, it, it's, it's more purple than blue or red now, but but there's there's a lot there are battles over some lo- some local races there, and they are concerned that local Republicans will just come and you know not get into the poll and challenge voters, but just bully and intimidate people outside. And if there's a you know a Republican election board that's willing to tolerate it and let people get closer than they 
are legally entitled to to the polls. That can happen. It, that can certainly happen. And there are stories here and there. I mean, I'm, I, there are people that will tell you in the mayor's race in 1999 in Philadelphia, which was close and competitive, that there were Republican people going to a, a, the 10th and 50th wards, black areas of Philadelphia, uh, and coming in vans with some kind of lapel pins that made them look like they were official and challenging voters, just kind of just everybody to come up, hey, who are you? Are you sure you're supposed to vote here? I mean, would, would, you got an ID? Um, I, haven't, I haven't confirmed this. I've just heard this from a lot of people. So I think it, it, it can happen, um, and it probably will happen in some places. Um, but it's important to remember that there are, what are there, 4,000 polling places in the state of Pennsylvania, and there's always going to be some problems, and just in part because it's, you know, this is something that is done mostly by temporary workers and volunteers twice a year. They tear down the whole machinery, right, and put it back together twice a year. There's going to be some problems. There are going to be machine issues, and there will be some mischief. But I think most people who want to vote can vote, and most votes will be counted fairly. But it it is certainly fair to be concerned because, you know, if, if, if something messes up, you can't do it over. So it's absolutely fair for everybody to be on guard for mischief and and report it and take care of it when it happens. Yeah, I, I wanted to point out, uh, just for balance sake, that, uh, uh, you know, there was a well-publicized case in Philadelphia, and I can't remember which election this was, where uh, there were supposedly black party, uh, yeah, excuse yes. me, Black Panther Party members at the polling places to intimidate uh, voters coming into the place. I don't know what year that was, what election it was, but that, that got a lot of publicity as well. I want to go back to something you said very early on. You said that there have been cases from the people you talked to, that there have been cases where there was something uh, that went wrong. Uh, and in fact, in the story, you pointed out that one of the people you talked to said that there have been like 10 prosecutions in the city of, of I don't know, voter fraud is was the right now. You need. Oh, sorry, Scott, you there? Yeah, sure. I, I thought I lost you for a second. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, go ahead. But talk a little bit about uh, some of those. What you learned about some of those occasions, even though they're rare, where there has been some voter, uh, some cheating, some fraud, uh, votes being added, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, and again, this comes from the the co-chair of the Philadelphia Election Board. Uh, and they've made an effort in in cases where there where there's mischief to to send them to the district attorney's office, and there have been a handful of prosecutions. Uh, one important point to make here is that none of these cases involve the kinds of uh, fraud that would would have been affected by a voter ID law. Uh, it's not people walking up and impersonating another voter. What uh, the, the one case that I mentioned there was a case where there was a, a completely democratic election board, and at the end of the day, as they were closing up the machines, they realized that there were, I think, seven more people had signed in to vote that day than there were votes tallied on the election machine. Now, this is, there are a number of kind of technical reasons. That this, is, this, this is obviously some error. Somebody didn't hit the vote button when, when they did, or, and the, the election uh, workers didn't catch it. But for some reason, there was an opportunity there for seven more votes to be added to the machine. And what the allegation is, and it was admitted to, is that these election words went over to the machine and click, 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 and they probably put seven um, straight-ticket Democratic votes on the machine themselves. This was observed by a Republican poll watcher. He reported it to the city county election board. The election board reported it to the DA's office, and four election workers were charged. So that's an example. And again, you got seven votes, and it and it and it and it, t- it typically happens when you have. Um, 
a circumstance like that where there, where there is an undervote and uh, a vote can a board can take advantage of it, and you have a board that is just used to doing things their own way. I mean, you have sometimes election boards where, where several of them are related. I mean, it's just because it's hard to get election workers. I mean, if anybody who's run elections know this. I mean, it, you don't get paid a ton of money. It's a very long day. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. And so people that are willing to do it often do it year after year and bring their brothers and sisters and cousins along. Um, and, and so it can get cozy, and that was the circumstance where I think that's exactly what happened. And again, it wasn't a ton of votes, but it was some votes, and probably those folks might have been more interested in you know, some other down ballot race than than. Well, I guess it was a governor's race, so I'm not sure what 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 their motives might have been, other than to simply produce a good turnout for their ward. But it was it was fraud, and it was caught. And I guess the question is, is it common? Does it happen all the time? And my sense is. Here and there, yes, here and there. I mean, I don't, I don't think you have dead people voting. I don't think, you know, people are coming in by the thousands. I don't think people are roaming around voting, voting at five different polling places. It's just too complicated and the risks are too high. But in cases like that where you have an election board that's too comfortable and there's an opportunity, you get some mischief. And, I, you know, um, I don't, that, that's my take on it. I mm-hmm. think it happens. I don't think it's tens of thousands of votes, but it's some and, and shouldn't have. Dave, we only have a few minutes left, uh, but I did want to touch on, you know, some of the politics that are going on in the Philadelphia region. We have heard many, many times that the Philadelphia suburbs uh, will be one of the keys to winning Pennsylvania in this presidential election. The latest poll, well, maybe I shouldn't say the latest because it seems like there's a poll out every day. But earlier this week, Bloomberg had a poll, Pennsylvania, had uh, Hillary Clinton holding a nine-point lead on Donald Trump. And in the Philadelphia suburbs, the four counties around Philadelphia that uh, was just trouncing, and that's their word, trouncing uh, Trump, uh, Clinton, trouncing. So give me a sense of, you know, has the tape from last week, the events of this week with uh, Trump having to defend himself against women said that he sexually assaulted them. Is it having a major impact on women especially, but voters overall in the Philadelphia suburbs? Um, you know, it's always hard to get a feel, but sure, I think it is, particularly among women voters. You know, as it happened, I, I went to a, a Pat Toomey event earlier this week, which was a Women for Toomey event. Uh, and so there were a lot of Republican women there, and I talked to a couple of them. And, and you can imagine, particularly Republican activist women are not exactly happy to get that kind of a question. Um, and to one of them, she just didn't want to, she just waved me off. But when I spoke to her off mic, she said um, she didn't notice a big difference in opinion, but what she did find was that the Trump critics were now much more comfortable being more vocal about it. Uh, I have to think it matters. You know, I mean, I don't, I think, you know, that uh, these two candidates are, are already so well known, and people's opinions are pretty fixed in most cases. But there are people, you know, who don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton and do think we need a different course in the country and are concerned about Supreme Court court picks and would prefer to have a Republican. But something like this really will bother them. And so I, it makes all kinds of sense to me that you're seeing the poll, poll movement that you referred to. And you're right. I mean, the Philly suburbs are a, a place where a Republican has to perform. And this is a big, big problem. And traditionally, 
Republicans have performed well in the Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, Philadelphia Republicans are, you know, often described as moderate, uh, you know, liberal on social issues, conservative on fiscal issues. What changed? Is it just Trump or has something, has there been uh, a sea change, a a demographic change? Yes, I think some of both. I mean, you're right that, I mean, historically, and then if we go back decades, I mean, they they were Republican. You know, Montgomery County, which has the, you know, is, is the third most populous county in the state after Philadelphia and Allegheny County, um, was historically Republican. And it was taken, the county commission was taken over by Democrats for the first time in over 100 years, a few years back. And you, you see registration edges, you see voting edges for Democrats in three of the four, uh, I mean, three of the, Obama carried three of the four suburban counties in both elections. I think he carried all four of them the first time. So, um, yeah, there's a change. It's partly um, Democrats from Philadelphia moving into the suburbs, as there's there's that area, and it's just a a general trend of people of of moderation. So they are much more competitive areas now. So that's part of it. I mean, there there have been just there's just a lot more Democrats and a lot more Democratic elected officials and more Democratic organization in the suburbs. But yeah, I mean, Trump has has you know he has offended a lot of moderate voters, and so that's going to hurt too. Dave Davies of WHYY Newsworks in Philadelphia. Hey, Dave, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. You know, you can hear today's show and previous editions of Smart Talk at WITF.org slash podcast or with the WITF app. You can also hear the entire program weeknights, uh, Monday through Thursday at 7 or on our website, WITF.org. Before the November 8th election, we'll be talking with many of the candidates for national and state offices. Today, we're joined by Mike Mulisevich, who is the Democrat running for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 10th Congressional District, which includes parts of Perry County, but uh, also Juniana, Northumberland, Mifflin counties. It runs all the way to the New York border. Mike Mulisevich is an environmental consultant and former mayor of Lewisburg. Mike Mulisevich, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. During uh, periods where we're talking with candidates, we don't take phone calls. We uh, just like to give the voters an opportunity to uh, listen to the candidate, what they have to say. First question, why are you running, Mike? I can do a better job than the guy who's there right now. And who is the, Tom Marino, the incumbent? The incumbent, three terms, six-year incumbent. And I'll ask the listeners, what has Tom done for us? And uh, the people of our district uh, need something, someone better, and they deserve better. Mm-hmm. What in particular? Constituent service. I, I, I go across the uh, district, and the first comment I receive when people learn that I am running against Tom Marino is thank you. Thank you for doing this. And what I hear is his constituent service is poor on response of as simple as returning phone calls, returning emails, and providing that basic constituent service. A lot of people think, Scott, that you know, being a congressman is mostly going to Washington, voting and talking in front of the podium and things like that. But there's a big part of it also is when you go back home, you have uh, two, three legislative offices and it's day to day constituent service, people calling for help, uh, Veterans Administration, uh, Social Security checks not arriving, things like that. And that's where I can do a better job. 
there are 315,000 people in that district, uh, 15 counties. Maybe I'm wrong. You give you give me a look. I thought it. Uh, it uh, yeah, you're way off. Uh, it's about. Seven hundred and thirty-five thousand. Okay, all right. I don't know uh, you're, where you're, I got that right. You're, you're right on the fifteen counties. Okay, fifteen counties. I don't know where I got that uh, that figure, but uh, it, it seems to make sense. But uh, with that many people, seven hundred thousand people in a district, how do you pay attention to their needs? It, it's a big job, and unfortunately, the state legislature uh, several years ago did a disservice to everyone in Pennsylvania when they extremely gerrymandered these districts. Shame on them. When you look at most of the districts in Pennsylvania, go to Wikipedia, go to uh, uh, the Census Department uh, website, look at the districts. It's an extreme form of protecting the current incumbents. I'll give you an example. If I had to drive from the extreme southwestern part of my district, Mifflin County, the Lewistown area, to the extreme northeast part of the district, Milford, Matamoras, right on the Delaware River going into New Jersey, a four-hour drive one way, the Pennsylvania legislature did that purposely. So I think in a couple of years, we could change that back to a little more state of normalcy so that all the Pennsylvanians can get better representation. Central Pennsylvania is often neglected in legislative matters, and I think it's a time that people hear that, and I think we can change that in a few years. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about some of those things that you just mentioned, but uh, I, when I first saw, actually, you and I have talked before. Sure. You're, you're an environmental consultant, and right. uh, uh, you've brought some things to my attention for right. topics for, for shows, Right. but uh, when I saw you were running, one of the first things I saw mentioned was that uh, Tom Marino, the incumbent, was one of the first, if not the first, Congress been here in Pennsylvania to endorse Donald Trump, that that was one of the reasons that you decided to run. Correct. Tell me about that. Well, uh, that was the, the game changer for me. Uh, actually, uh, to be quite literal, I was listening to National Public Radio, Morning Edition. I was in my morning routine. We all have that. I was probably, uh, I think I was working out. And so the next thing I hear is Mr. Marino on the radio, National Public Radio, talking about his uh, support of, of Donald Trump. And at that point, I suspected and probably knew that there was not going to be anyone on the Democratic ballot for the spring primary. And at that point, I decided I could not sit this election out. I have to do something, just like any other good American. At times, we are called to service. That was my call to service. So that is when I decided that this is too important. I reviewed my, my personal life with uh, people I, with whom I live, uh, key colleagues and friends and advisors. And, and so a lot of people think, Scott, that uh, someone gets a phone call in the middle of the night saying, it's your turn to run. It doesn't work like that. There was no Would one. Would you have preferferred that? No. Well, I don't know. I'm joking. I, I don't know. It's, it, 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 good question. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You well, know. It, it could be flattering. And, it's, you know, it would be nice to say that, uh, hey, we heard good things about you. We think you could do a good job. It, you know, at least in my case, it hasn't worked like that. I've been running my own business for 30 years, uh, as you indicated, former mayor, former borough council. I've been doing my community service. I'm doing good work. Uh, you know, I'm running a small business uh, and hiring uh, subcontractors across Central. Pennsylvania. I know the district better. But there was another part that uh, at least planted the seed in my mind uh, 
I went to visit uh, uh, a Chamber of Commerce legislative luncheon, uh, we call them, uh, with the Greater Susquehanna Valley Chamber of Commerce and Essential uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce in, in my area. And the guest speaker was uh, the incumbent Tom Marino. And it was it was a really disappointing performance by the incumbent. Uh, of course, he, he went through this whole tirade of, uh, first of all, blaming uh, President Obama for everything and complaining about regulations and, uh, you know, we need to cut taxes and things like that. And then he went on to using all these crazy anecdotal uh, bits of information and saying, really, things that I, I had I had a question. And one of them, he picked an environmental topic. He said, quote, if we cut all the... Uh, combustion and use of fossil fuels in North America, there would be no effect on the environment. Think about that. He said that morning, if we cut all the fossil fuel consumption in North America, there'd be no effect on the environment. I immediately raised my hand and I said, I question that. What is your source? He said, I have a source. I'll mail it to you. I got back to my office and there was an email from his aide, not from him, and there was an attachment. There was a PDF. The PDF was the environmental impact statement for the Susquehanna Valley Thruway. I've done a little bit of environmental work in my day, and just by the title, I was kind of, huh, well, that's interesting. That, that reference is going to be in there. I read it. I did a PDF search on keywords. There was nothing there with regard to that. He sent me a bogus uh, document thinking that I wouldn't read it or look at it. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I replied back to his aide, and I said, perhaps you sent the wrong document. Would you please, you know, there was nothing in the document r related to what he said. I'm still waiting for that reply. He blew me off. <laughs> See, uh, where are you on climate change? It is happening. Last month was the hottest record on record since 1880, since we've been keeping records. Well, actually, it tied the previous month, 2016, July. It is here. It is happening. Let's put it this way. If you had a sick child, bad fever, grandchild, niece, nephew, and you took him or her to a lot of doctors, and 97% of the doctors said, we have a serious problem here. We need to do something. 3% said, nah, don't worry about it. Who would you believe? But at the same time... Um the federal government, I mean, we know that this has become a political issue. Right. If you were elected to Congress, what could you do about it? Well, first of all, I wouldn't deny it. And actually, what's interesting, I'm going to pull out a little something here, and, and this is going to be a little educational piece. As you see, and you could confirm this, I'm holding up the U.S. Constitution. On Article One, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution... There is a section, and this is the section that says the Congress shall have power to levy taxes, establish a post office, etc. It also says the Congress shall have power to promote the progress of science right here in the Constitution. That's what I would do. If the Democrats were to take control of the, the House, the first thing we would do is replace, the, uh, replace Lamar Smith, who's uh, an embarrassment to science and the community of science and all scientists across the world, and replace him. We have a, Who we have is a, he? Who's Lamar Smith? He's, uh, he's a congressman from Texas, and uh, basically he's the one who's uh, going back on all these uh, legal suits against attorney generals across this uh, country with regard to uh, uh, their work on uh, Exxon's uh, investigation, their investigation of Exxon's uh, denial of climate change and what they've been doing all these years. So uh, 
And so, yeah, yeah, things like that. I have an email here from a listener who wants to know, would you be running if Trump wasn't the GOP nominee? I think I might be. When I when I looked at my, my life and my, uh, where I'm at right now with regard to my profession, my, my career, uh, what I have on my plate, I, I think I would. Because I think in a democratic society and a free market society, choice is very important. And what I am doing by having stepped up I'm giving the voters of the 10th Congressional District a choice. There's another very dangerous candidate out there, Scott, and we, you, I'm sure you saw it on your ballot. I'm sure every citizen in Pennsylvania saw this candidate's name on their ballot. No candidate filed. No candidate filed is a very dangerous candidate, in my opinion. What if we go to, a, to vote and every position is no candidate filed? What happens to our democracy? Well, we've had it uh, very often, not just uh, on the federal level with the congressional races, but even more so on the state level. You're exactly them. right. Yeah. You're exactly so. Part of also part of my running, and I know I'm on the on the underdog. I know that. Let's talk about that. Go ahead. Let's talk about that because your district, and we'll try to get a map of the 10th district uh, on our website. Great. But just to describe it. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania is often described as the T. Correct. You know, you know, you have Philadelphia and Pittsburgh on one side, and then you have the T that runs through central Pennsylvania and the northern tier counties. Your district, the 10th district, would be the right side of that T. Correct. It, it goes from Perry, Juniana County, Mifflin County, all the way up to Bradford County, Tioga. And goes east. Way, goes east. Correct. So it would be the right side of that T. This is a heavily Republican area. Right. I went to uh, Tom Marino's uh, website and to uh, his Facebook page and read some of the comments. I mean, some of the voters that are commenting don't feel that he's conservative enough. So my question to you is, in a heavily Republican area, how do you get to those voters? It's interesting when um, I have uh, been talking to people and, and, and even people in my business. I've been doing business for 30 years. You don't stay in business for 30 years by being an extremist. And what's interesting, I've had several supporters come up to me and say, Mike, I didn't realize you were a Democrat. That's interesting. And also in the primary, which was the write-in primary, if you recall, I had to get 1,000 write-in votes. And I got almost 2,500. I had emails and calls from Republicans after the primary and said, Mike, I wrote you in. You do good business, you're a moderate, and I like how you handle yourself. That's what I would like to present to the voters is I'm not an extreme Democrat, as Mr. Marino is an extreme. I think he's an extreme uh, Republican, given his voting record. I am more moderate, and I would like to bring more moderation and cooperation to Congress. So that is my approach to the voters. And I think it's a, it's a very good choice talk about some issues in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking with, uh, we'll be talking, I should put it that way, with a number of candidates, uh, both Republican and Democrat, and even Libertarian candidates, here in the next few weeks before the November 8th election. Our first congressional candidate today is Mike Mulasevich, who is the Democrat running for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 10th Congressional District. All right, let's talk about some uh, some issues. Went to your website and looked at uh, where you stand on uh, some of these issues. One of the things that you mentioned is stemming the flow of 
jobs overseas. How would you do that as a member of Congress? Part of my, there's three main uh, issues that I have. One is uh, reforming uh, campaign finance, uh, because that, without doing that first, we really, in my opinion, cannot solve most, if not all, the other problems. The other, you know, coming back to the climate change issue, we need to focus on that, and that leads into my, my jobs and economy program. The future of our country, the future of this world belongs to the efficient, the efficient use of resources, the efficient use of energy, water, everything. After that, we need to transition quickly and aggressively on renewable and sustainable energy, forest resources, timber, farm, food production, water resources. That is central Pennsylvania. And that is the job program. In addition to preserving and protecting downtowns, historic preservation, redeveloping brownfields. You know, we talk about Pennsylvania being part of the Rust Belt. I look at that as, uh, as an opportunity because that's been my profession. I have been working with contractors, realtors, bankers, attorneys on looking at old industrial properties that have been neglected in Pennsylvania, in my area, in central Pennsylvania. So part of my job has been resolving those environmental issues to reduce the environmental liability so that those properties can be redeveloped. They're often in downtown areas where the infrastructure already exists, city water, city sewer, rail, electric, roads. That is good. And by, while we're doing that, one more... Uh, okay, yeah, because well, I wanted to interrupt you about what this has to do with overseas jobs. Well, th th we're going to... Well, th th the jobs are going to be here. So we're going we're gonna, to... There's. When you do those types of uh, uh, in incentives and programs, the jobs are going to stay here because you can't do that work overseas. The other thing that that program does, it protects and takes the pressure off developing our rural heritage, Pennsylvania, and farmland. We need to protect that for the future generations. I am doing this. I'm talking about these issues, so I hope some younger people will realize this is their future. We live in a global economy. We have to compete globally. Building walls and putting up tariffs will not work. All right, let's talk about trade. You just mentioned tariffs. Uh, Donald Trump actually, from the very beginning, uh, it's kind of been lost now in the last few weeks, but uh, he, one of the reasons he got into this campaign was he was talking about uh, the unfair trade deals that uh, the United States has entered into. And now both Democrat uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump are against TPP, Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Uh, you know, a lot of when they look at those, uh, when they talk about those trade deals, they talk about the loss of jo American jobs. Where do you stand on trade? Fair trade. Pennsylvania. What's that mean? What's fair trade mean? It's fair to everybody. Pencil give me an example. Fair Pennsylvania exports. I think you had this on your program, uh, and I did some research afterwards. I, you know, I listened to. I, I learned a lot from your program. And what uh, about a week ago, one of your guests was saying, almost thirty billion dollars per year is exported from Pennsylvania manufacturers. Almost thirty billion, and so so the conservative reactionary perspectives of, of Tom and Don is let's you know more tariffs. What happens when you set up a tariff on an import from a country? What's the first thing they're going to do? We retaliate, probably. Exactly, Re retaliate with another tariff. So building walls and setting up tariffs does not work. Most major e economists are are just you know destroying uh, Trump's and and Marino's support of those types of proposals. Look over the history of our, our you know so our, of our history and, and our economy. So th the programs that I think work are cutting 
taxes for middle-class Americans. Why? Because when you cut their taxes, it increases spending. Increasing spending creates a, a bigger demand for goods and services. So if, as comparison of, of cutting taxes for the upper, uh, uh, the wealthy, there's, there's pent up, there's no demand for uh, goods and services. So they're not going to put that money into new factories because there is no demand for producing anything from those factories. So we need to create demand for goods and services, and the way you do that is by, by cutting taxes on the middle class. What taxes would you cut on the middle class? Would you support cutting on the middle class? And then my, my secondary question to that is, do you support raising taxes on you know people earning over a certain income? Yes to the latter. And the main one, usually on, on, on the former uh, question, is, is, is income tax. Okay, so income tax for middle class tax cut. Right. Uh, what would the income limit be? What would you support as the income limit being for taxes being raised? I'm not sure. I would have to see a proposal. I, I can't answer that. Okay, but in your, so in your mind, though, what is wealthy? I mean, what's the 1%, the top 1% as everyone refers to? What would that person's income be? Over a million. Over a million. So someone, over, or say over a million people, a million dollars a year would pay higher taxes. Correct. And also, I think that gets back to Social Security and making sure Social Security remains secure and the income limit on paying Social Security has to be raised significantly or the cap comes off. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk. I'm trying to get in as many as you, you probably can tell. Try to get sure, as many issues sure. as I can here in our, our half hour. Fighting ISIS. Um, you know, we hear it mentioned, but we don't hear a whole lot of specifics about uh, fighting terrorism. And this is one of the biggest threats to the security of the United States that we face today. Where do you come down on uh, what we should be doing uh, in fighting terrorism? Well, I haven't gotten my uh, national security briefing yet, so I don't have all the details as, as some other people might. Yeah, but you have to have opinions. I do. I do. But this is, what, this is what's unique about someone coming brand new into this arena. Uh, I, I still have a day job, and I will get to it. And what, what the sad part about here's the thing about getting back to campaign finance reform. Unfortunately, when you start to run an election, I would love to focus. Look, look at my table in front of me, all, all the position papers and policy papers. However, you know where most congressmen spend their time? Fundraising. Dialing for dollars. It's a travesty. It's a shame. However, getting back to your question, I will not ignore it. Most issues, in my opinion, come back to environmental and energy. I believe if we take that strong, aggressive, assertive plan on, re on uh, energy efficiency and reducing our oil imports, that affects our interest there. So if we reduce that, we can reduce what we need to protect there. In addition, we have to you know, continue doing good uh, foreign policy, diplomacy always first, and, and being strong and secure in all of the areas that, w that we have going. Okay, so energy security is one thing. But in ISIS and some of the other uh, extremist groups in the Middle East, you have people that really don't care about oil and energy independence. Uh, it's a religious war to them that they that see the United States. But, you know, one of the things uh, I, I love about uh, history, and, you know, those who forget it will, will be bound to repeat it, follow the money. Follow the money, Scott. What's their biggest economic uh, resource there? Oil. 
Follow the money. Thank you, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Well, actually, supposedly uh, in the, in the movie, all the president's men, uh, that term had been used before. But but really, that's the thing I can't figure out is how do these people, how do these, how does ISIS and these radical uh, groups continue to feed themselves, fuel their vehicles, buy this ammunition? Where does it? Where does it come from? We only have about th three minutes left, and I want to make sure that we do get to as much as possible. Sure. Um, this district, it's mostly a rural district. Right. Uh, it has a, a, a big hunting tradition. Uh, but you also have the city of Williamsport, right. where over the past uh, 20 years, there has been, I don't know if I'll go as far as saying explosion, but there has been an uptick in crime and the use of guns in Williamsport. Where do you stand on trying to keep uh, illegal guns out of the hands of criminals? And again, with that backdrop, knowing that you have a lot of gun owners in that district. Coming down, I was listening to your program and talking about the increase in accidental deaths in children and firearms. Reading today's newspaper, there was a shooting in Snyder County. And most polls agree across the country that we need stricter gun enforcement, universal background checks, and revisiting the s assault weapon issue. It's related to drugs. Here, here's really quickly my position on drugs. If we, the, the whole war on drug concept has to be totally revamped and reevaluated or just started all over. If we use that analogy of war on drugs, and like any other war, we have different, we have different fronts, okay? And if I was the general, I would go to my, my colonels and say, where are we losing our soldiers and, and, and civilians? And they would answer, sir, we're losing them on the opioid heroin front, hundreds, thousands. Where are we, how much are we losing on the marijuana front? Why, we, we've had no deaths there, sir. Well, then why are we spending resources, personnel, and wasting so much time and energy on the marijuana front? Shouldn't we take that away and put it to the opioid heroin front would you support legalization yes. of marijuana for uh, yes. recreational purposes yes 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 okay uh, we only have about 40 seconds left and mike malasevich want to thank you very much for being with us today you're welcome try to Scott. give an opportunity to uh, candidates leave a message with the voters of the 10th district what would that message be you have a choice also early voting in pennsylvania has already started absentee ballots are available right now. So if you believe you're going to be out of the country, away on work, uh, if you're, uh, you have a relative, a parent who is ill, request an absentee ballot. That's the first thing. You've, if you haven't registered, shame on you because the deadline is passed. I can do a better job. I know the district very quickly. I've been in business for 30 years. Tom Marino, zero. Former mayor of Lewisburg, and borough council member, I know the district better. They deserve better. Mike Molosevich, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. We continue our conversations with candidates on Monday. Republican Congressman Charlie Dent from the 15th District in Pennsylvania runs into central Pennsylvania and eastern Pennsylvania as well.